right. Morning, friends. My name is Jeremy, um, and I'm very thankful to be with you today. Um, what a neat community that God's building here. I'm very, very grateful to be a part of it. If um, you may have seen, you know, those ads for like, you know, the Rosie the Riveter with the red bandana, um, you know, all the way back hearkening to those World War II days. What that's hearkening back to is a time when, and very similar in the time and space, in January 1942, which is right after the Pearl Harbor attacks. Just after that, FDR ordered this thing called the War Production Board to be established. There were two main goals of that War Production Board. The first is that it would convert peacetime automobiles, appliance, and toy factories into war machine production lines. Tanks, guns, infrastructure. Secondly, that it would conserve materials like metal, petroleum, rubber, plastic, paper, even rationing things like gas and milk and sugar. And the goal was twofold. The goal was to send as many resources as they could. They had a common enemy. They had a common mission that they were all on back in 1942. And they, would, they launched these marketing campaigns to remind people of the hardships of those soldiers who were going overseas to serve, who were fighting uh, for their lives many times to encourage generosity and giving to that common mission. For instance, there were a couple kind of like this. 10 salvage station, I need your 10 in your empty toothpaste and shave cream tubes. Now the thought of a tin toothpaste tube sounds weird. It feels like the toothpaste would have just tasted like chewing on metal. Uh, or secondly, she's a swell plane, ain't she? Give us more, more production. And the, the whole idea was these, these you know, different um, ads would be placed all over town with the common goal of there is a war happening. Everyone be aware, even though you can't necessarily feel it all the time, there is a war going on and there is a way that you can be involved. There is a community effort that has to happen in order for this war to be fought and in order for this war to be won. Where we're diving into in the book of Acts today, the church is at war. The church is just getting her sea legs under her and is just starting to mobilize the gospel. And in the next few chapters, that gospel is going to go from Jerusalem, Judea, a little bit of Samaria, and then it's about to explode. Persecution's coming. There's all kinds of hardship and difficulty, some of which we're just on the other side of and a lot more to come. But the way that the church handles that in this moment and on, even into today, is this wartime mentality that there is a common mission, there is a common goal, and all of our resources and efforts funnel towards that one common purpose that we have for the sake of our victorious king. The troops have been assembled one by one. They're being saved out of these lives of sin and servitude to Satan. And they are now being freed for a life with King Jesus, leveraging everything they have for the sake of his mission. 
That King Jesus has ascended. The sergeant apostles have been sent out and are being stationed and sent all across the world, mounting this love offensive of healing and preaching and praying. And now they begin to face pushback and they begin to face opposition. The beginning of Acts chapter four describes some of that pushback. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, the ones who thought they had God figured out, and this was blowing all their categories, not to mention all their theological categories. It was breaking all of their social categories, all of their monetary categories. Everything was being threatened right now. And so they were responding angrily, vehemently. And the church responds. But the church responds with this love offensive, and out of this, a generous community begins to grow. And so the text that we're going to read today describes this generous community, what it looked like, how it functioned, what its goals were, who its king was. So let's go ahead and read that, and then we're going to learn a little bit about what that means for our day today. So this is Acts 4. Caitlin, if you want to come up. Acts 4, way less verses than the past two weeks. Praise the Lord. Uh, verses 32 through 37. Thanks, Caitlin. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as, many as were lis- for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we're coming to you asking for a holy imagination. Because our normal life doesn't feel like war. Uh, It definitely doesn't feel like war with the kingdoms and principalities and powers of this world and the next. And so we need a a different vision. We need the blinders taken off of our eyes to be able to see there is something so much bigger going on in this world. We want to see you this morning, our king, high and lifted up. We want to see where your eyes and your heart and your feet are walking, and we want to walk in the way of them. So open our eyes through your scriptures. Open our eyes uh, through this next 40 to 50 minutes that we have together for the sake of us seeing our king and falling at his feet and giving our lives to him. And then wherever you send us, Jesus, we want to go. Send us powerfully, we pray in Christ. Amen. Because even the reason I pray there, I feel in my own heart, and I'm sure for many of us as well, we come into this room and things feel peaceful. I mean, yeah, there's some stuff going on. There's some difficulties in front of you. We've got our own issues in the U.S. and and whatever else. But 
by and large, it just feels like, yeah, we're just, we're okay. Like we got our stuff and we got our fam and we got our house and we got our, you know, whatever. And we get stuck in this peacetime mentality where our eyes are, are just so stuck in what's right in front of us, we cannot pick our heads up to see what's really going on. That the, the reality of this coming kingdom invading our reality that is at war with every evil thing that one day will purge the entire world and make a new heavens and a new earth, that's where we're headed. And we can get involved with it now because that kingdom is already coming. Jesus is already reigning and he is already mobilizing these troops from all tribes, all tongues, and all nations to bring that kingdom to bear, even right here in Creefall. And part of the way we do that is with our stuff. This is not some ethereal, sorry, not some ethereal kingdom where babies play harps that we're gonna float away to, or that's the ultimate goal. No, the ultimate goal is right here, right now, all of this reality, but glorified. That's where we're going. And so what would it look like to begin with a holy imagination to live now like that's true and like that's coming? But we can't force that. I can't force that in my own heart. There's already been three opportunities for me to pray this morning with various groups of people and even more so than normal, I feel my need for that. Because I just, you can't force this type of mentality in your own mind. It has to be given by the Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, give us that imagination. Because the goal this morning is not to create a commune. Uh, what's happening in the end of Acts 4 is not this sort of communist thing. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. The goal is a convoy. This convoy of grace that is chugging throughout history, knocking down the gates of Satan and evil and sin and death along with our king. Giving the world a vision for this generous king and his generous kingdom that's coming to bear on this world. So we're going to take two points in turn um, pretty quickly this morning. The first is generosity builds community. And the second is community breeds generosity. Generosity and community have this interplay between the two. Generosity builds it, and then community reinforces it. So generosity builds community. Again, like I just mentioned, the context of the beginning of Acts 4, just peer back uh, a couple of sentences, and you can see the church is being pressed for the first time here. They're being opposed for the first time here. They're being thrown in jail for the first time here. Then they, they get released. Peter and John get released. They get told to stop preaching. They say, sorry, not sorry. We're going to keep going. Uh, but then they also recognize their need for the Holy Spirit to empower that thing. They go back, grab all their buddies, have a prayer meeting. And when they pray, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There was this mission that they were on together. There were now... 5,000 of them who believed in this King Jesus, who believed that he was died, buried, resurrected, ascended, and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now the full number of those who believed, verse 32, were of one heart and soul. 
And it's really fun if you peel back both of those words, one heart and one soul, uh, there's a parallel passage all the way back in First Chronicles. When the Davidic kingdom, when King David was beginning to ascend to power and he gathered all of these mighty men that began to, to establish his kingdom and rule and reign. And they were, they were the ones who were like, we're behind you. We'll go with you wherever you go. We're gonna make your way straight. We're gonna bring this kingdom to bear. And in First uh, Chronicles 12, verse 38, it says, all these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with a whole heart. There's that whole heart to make David king over Israel. Likewise, the rest of Israel were of a single mind, one heart, one mind to make David king. Today, what the Spirit is doing, even in Midtown Creve Hall, for sure across Midtown, the movement as a whole, for sure across the United States, for sure even across the world, is convincing a people more and more that he is the king and that we are leveraging everything that we have to make Jesus king. Now, he already is, but there's a lot of work to bring that to bear in all the little nooks and crannies, first, of our hearts, and secondly, of our worlds. One heart and one soul means this entirety of our inner life, like all of our feelings, all of our thoughts, all of our will being mobilized to this kingdom effort. Verse 32, no one said that any of these things belonging to him was his own but they had everything in common. You may have heard the statement before that you can have Jesus in common and have nothing else in common and have everything in common. Because I've had friends in the past who we have said this out loud to each other. The only reason that we are friends is because of Jesus. Because otherwise, we have nothing in common. We don't run in the same circles. We don't go to the same uh, sporting events. We don't root for the same teams. That's for sure. Go dogs. Uh, thank you. But it is very true that we can have nothing in common and have Jesus in common and have everything in common. Here's another war story. Uh, in, on Christmas Eve of 1914, in the middle of World War I, this famous Christmas truce happened. British and German troops had spent the last few months hunkered down in these three-by-three three bunkers, just getting rained on, shivering cold, the only thing being exchanged between uh, the British and the German being gunfire. And there was this no man's land filled with barbed wire and dead bodies and nothing of nothing stands between the two of them. And on Christmas Eve of 1914, the, the British soldiers begin to hear this murmuring and this rumbling in the distance. And they listen harder and they're shh, shh, shh. And they begin to hear Christmas carols being sung. And the, those Christmas carols are not being sung by British troops in the English language, they are being sung by German troops in the German language. And O Holy Night uh, and Martin Luther hymns and all kinds of stuff that had formed who they were as Germans began to be sung on this night. And then the British troops began to join in. Maybe probably in their various languages, but the tunes remain the same. 
and they began to sing together. And then as the Germans heard that, they began to yell over, hey, come out. Which sounds like a trap. But on that night, with even though they had everything else not in common, they had one thing in common, and that was Jesus. And that night, troops from both sides came into that no man's land, sort of this no fire zone, and they collectively sang Christmas carols, shared cigarettes and old wine, and celebrated. They had nothing else in common and had Jesus in common. And at least for that night, they had everything in common. So what does that look like for us? What does that look like in this generous community, even right here, that Jesus is building? For us to have maybe nothing else in common with the the people sitting in front or behind you, and yet in some way to find a commonality that can transcend all those other differences. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. That word for grace, I'm a kid of the 90s. uh, So the word for grace is, or I'm sorry, great is megale, like mega man. Anybody? Kids of the 90s, mega man. I just overshot again. I keep giving illustrations that were before you were born. I'm sorry. Um, this great grace means mega grace, like the upper end of a scale, deep grace, like wide-reaching implication grace. That's the kind of grace that's active in these now 5,000 people who are collectively going, something in our lives just totally changed. I can't totally describe it, but I now believe something that I used to think was total baloney. And it's changing my entire life. Maybe you've had that experience. That has been my experience. And there's this moment for these 5,000 who are now looking at each other. And remember, these folks were just told and called out in chapter four, you denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life, Peter says, whom God raised from the dead. You killed him? God fixed it. What does that mean? That means you're on the, you messed up. You done messed up. Hey, hey, Ron. The, The resurrection before it is a benefit to us, it is an indictment of us. We collectively, humanity collectively, are those who have placed Jesus on the cross. Uh, We have denied God's kingship over our lives, every one of us. Every one of us constantly bucking his authority in our lives, choosing rather to just enjoy what we want to enjoy, do what we want to do. Doesn't really matter so much what he has to say about it. We killed the one who gave us life. Our sin nailed him to the cross. And the resurrection proves that we have screwed up. But the words that Peter says just after that echo Jesus's words on the cross in a very eerie way. Because Peter says, guys, I know you did this in ignorance, but it's time to repent. It's time to wake up 
and be aware of what's really happening. Wake up to the reality of your sinful self. Wake up to the reality that you want to buck God out of every part of your life and then walk back into relationship with him through the blood of Christ. I know you acted in ignorance. And as Jesus is on the cross, he's pleading with the father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Great grace for you. And that mega kind of grace, that Jesus' mega pardon for mega sinners build this mega community filled with mega generosity because we've tasted it and we've seen it in Jesus' life and death and resurrection and his spirit now working in us to actually believe that that actually happened. That the greatest gift in all of history was this generous king giving away his son, his only son who he dearly loved. And that kind of generosity begins to uh, open our hands up to do the same. Verse 34, because there was not a needy person among them. When we begin to grasp just how needy we are before this God, just how inadequate we are to come to him, this reality check begins to happen. The other thing that begins to happen is we realize, oh man, I really, if there's a God and he controls everything, then I really don't control anything. That anything that I have isn't even really mine. It's just a gift from him. And so whatever I'm going to do with it, I want to do my best to leverage that for the sake of what he would want me to do with it because he's the one that gave it to me. It shakes us from our focus of only thinking about us because someone outside of me has thought of me. And if someone outside of me who is as powerful as God is thinks of me, then I can take a deep breath and I can pick my head up and I can say, okay, God's caring for me. Who, who might he want to care for through me? He's got me. He's got my finances. He's got my health. He's got my future. He's got my kids. He's got my car. He's got my net worth. He's got whatever that is. That's, that's in the back. That's taken care of. I have an inheritance, inheritance in heaven and it's not going anywhere. So how might I be freed up to love somebody else? Now, again, as we read this, there may be some thoughts about, okay, this sounds an awful lot like communism. This sounds an awful lot like they were all selling their stuff and they gave it to the apostles and who knew if the apostles were going to do anything good with it. This feels kind of eerie and creepy. This is not a communist manifesto. Because if you notice in both this passage and the next one, the, the property ownership was still theirs, freely to do what they wanted with. They freely were wanting to give that, trusting that because they were taken care of, I, here you go, you, you can have it. Apostles, I get, I value what you're doing. And I'm gonna roll everything out that I have for you. And there, if there's any more where that came from, I'm gonna keep giving that. Because this creative generosity that can begin to happen when we see our fellow soldiers hurt in this battle and we pick them up and collectively say, come on, come on we're, don't forget, there is one goal that we have. There is one chief cornerstone. There is one king who we all collectively are moving in the direction of. But what's so stinking difficult is this little thing inside our chest that just wants to do what we want and is very afraid to let go. Because 
uh, I used to work with a pastor who, um, there's a lot of Christmas themes today. I'm not sure why. I'm getting excited about Christmas because it's getting a little colder. Um, but there's a, there's a slugs and bugs. It's like a little, you know, kids sing along kind of, um, he's really great. But he, he wrote this song called Happy Birthday, Jesus. And it goes, happy birthday, Jesus. Happy birthday, Jesus. Happy birthday, Jesus. I'm so glad that you were born. And uh, this pastor I used to work under tells the story of his kids were in the back seat and they were bopping along to that song. And then he heard them shout out with all kinds of glee, I'm so glad that I was born. <laughs> and, and we can get that so <laughs> wrapped backwards in our, in our hearts and minds where we flip and think, man, I'm so glad I was born. I'm so glad I've built what I've built. I'm so glad that this money I have, I've worked so hard for. I'm so glad that this family I've built, I've done everything right so that they're gonna be great, so that their kids will be great, so that their kids will be great, so they'll always remember how amazing I was. And we can totally get that backwards where we, we naturally are so focused on Jesus being about my life that we spend a lot less time thinking about my life being about Jesus or Jesus being about my money than my money being about Jesus. And so not only is our heart a mess, but then we also have this entire Western society that's built on capitalism, that's built on more is better, that's built on you do you, that's built on up and to the right. This is a definition from an economics textbook. Economics is concerned with the efficient use and management of limited productive resources to achieve maximum satisfaction of human material wants. What's the goal of the Western economy? Me, being happy. So not only are our hearts upside down, but our culture and everything we are being shaped by and the commercials we see and the, the ads that we find on our Facebook profiles, everything inside of us and everything outside of us is saying, this life is about you, your stuff is about you, conserve it all because everybody else just wants to take it. And then our generous king comes and reminds us that his kingdom is invading. It is eternal and infinite and has ultimate riches. He owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. Everything is under his foot. Which allows us to begin to open up. But Jesus makes a really interesting point in the Gospel of Matthew when he's teaching all about this kingdom coming and how to handle our money and worry and anxiety and all these things. And in Matthew 6, 21, he goes, for where your treasure is, there your heart is. Notice the order in which he says those things. Where your treasure goes, there your heart follows. What does that mean? As opposed to I, I really want to care about refugees. I would love to be a person who cares about refugees. I would love to have a soft heart for the broken and downtrodden in my city. How do you begin to get that heart? There's two options. You can wait for it and be waiting a long time. Or could Jesus's wisdom begin to propel you to, okay, then what if I put a little bit of treasure there 
and then trust that my heart is going to be softened along the way by the Holy Spirit as I begin to put some of my resources, time, energy, effort, money, in that bucket, then maybe my heart will begin to be softened. I'll begin to see these people not as a commodity far away for me to help, but actually as people who I could love. And the very same could be true of a whole host of things. I really want to think about uh, world missions more. I really want God to do some great work in my church and in this city. The wisdom of Jesus is that as we, there are practices that begin to form us. Generosity is a practice that forms us as much as it is something that we are informed into doing. It can work both ways, for sure. But Jesus is at the starting point here and he's saying, if you would like to be a generous person, don't wait until your heart gets fuzzy about it. Go like actually give something to somebody and see if your heart doesn't come along. And you can do, you know, if you've ever seen how openly generous kids are with money, we'll be driving down the road and, you know, there'll be the, uh, the panhandler on the side of the road. And almost every time my kids are like, dad, you got any, you got anything in here? There's, there's something so natural about a child's heart in that, such an open handedness. Jesus says, be like that. Give and then let your heart be formed into that. So. Here is, um, by the way, this is a really helpful book. And I've been very much shaped and informed with a lot of what I said uh, today by it. It's called Practicing the King's Economy. Um, And I just want to read a little part out of it. He's talking about essentially that if, if we have been given generously in the life and death of Jesus, that Jesus's generosity to us was two things at least. It was costly and it built community. He laid down his life for his people. And so it was costly to him, it was his life, and it was for not only you individually, but to build a people for himself. And so our generosity, if it's to reflect that, to make this a little bit more practical, it would be costly and it would be community building. So here's an example. Perhaps the greatest testimony of such giving, talking about costly and community building, comes from the early church. About a hundred years after the death of Jesus, Aristides wrote that when a Christian became poor and the church had nothing to spare, they would fast for two or three days for him. In this way, they could supply any poor man with food as he needed. Such giving embodies the kind of generosity that bears the suffering of our neighbors costly, and deepens the relationship between us, community building. Practically speaking, we suggest, one, giving something up so that you can give more, and two, seeking to give in such a way that your heart and life become further connected to others. So whatever that might look like for you, whatever the spirit might be birthing in you uh, in this creative generosity, both as you think about the needs in this particular body of people that you're giving your time, your energy, your money, and your resources to, and also for the sake of this great king who is doing something global and cosmic that he's inviting us into. However, he might call you into that. Um, I just invite you to ask that question. 
how is my current giving? Where's my money going? How is that either forming me or deforming me? And how might Jesus call me to be more and more formed by his kingship and his world vision in my life and with my generosity? Let's pray. So again, King Jesus, we need your kind of hope. We need your kind of imagination. We need your kind of grace to yet again, for us, do what money can't do. Do what our resources can't do. Money promises to insulate. It promises to keep us healthy. It promises to give us security and safety. It promises to provide for our future. But it lies. You're, you do that. And, and so I pray that collectively we would open our hands. Open our hands to what it is that you are doing in this world and how we might get on board. Uh, we want to see you high and lifted up. We want to see your kingdom come in Creve Hall, in South Nashville, across this city and across the state and across this country and world. You are inviting us to be involved. Uh, catch us with even a moment of both conviction uh, and earnestness and courage of what this might look like for us to be more and more engaged in that world mission. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.